This morning, let's turn, please, to Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. Titus 3 and verse 4. Ladies' prayer will happen right after this at 1130. Is that correct? Man, have I got a great memory. Having finished the exposition of Romans, we also went through a distillation. We did the same thing for Revelation. I find that it's quite an effective method at getting clarity. And we finished that phase, an expanded translation of Romans with some streamlined commentary inserted. All of those, incidentally, are available at one way or another out at the information table in sort of a raw and imperfect form. I think I'll still look to doing a translation or a a paraphrase without the comments down the road. Having finished the distillation phase, today we begin a brand new series. However, it, it is engendered by Romans. The new series will simply be called Romans, colon, Doctrines. Doctrines is one of the eight, now there's nine, theological functional specialties. Doctrines emerge after a distillation of Romans. And the doctrine that we're going to consider today and this may be the only one that we deal with from Romans, the doctrine of justification. There's been a long time coming. In doing this doctrine, you have to engage with the viewpoints of the past, some of which were aberrations or departures from the truth, and some of which got it pretty squared away. And after the labor we've done together, I think we're going to have a normative doctrine, that is one which is clearly demonstrated in the scriptures. To do so, I want to go to Titus. As I said at the very beginning of Romans, the pastoral epistles involve some summation passages, passages that sum up the crucial essence of Paul's epistles. And not the least of these, by any means, is Titus, especially in 2.11 through 14 and 3, 4 through 7, which we're going to look at today. The doctrine of justification, part one. Before we do, though, on the way down, I began to think about some things. And I think I want to do a, before a teaching thing, I want to do a pastoral exhortation as we begin not only with Romans doctrines, but with also a theological emphasis that we haven't seen before. I'm, I'm, very kind of trepidatious with fear and trembling whenever I step out of a verse-by-verse study, and I'm very comfortable with that, and the Lord has given me the grace and the gift of exegesis. So I'm not going to depart from that. I'm even considering doing a fusion study of Hebrews and Ephesians together where I bring in the theological things that we need to bring forth. 
It is extremely important, and I thought of the two visions of human authenticity in the 20th century. There are two primary visions of what it means to be an authentic person. That word authenticity has been thrown around a lot, as usual. But the German philosopher Heidegger, that's H-E-I-D-E-G-G-E-R, defined authenticity, human authenticity, as a moral self-assertion, a self-assertion that has nothing to do with a moral compass, a scale of values, but just simply self-assertion. This is the kind of pseudo-authenticity that we see everywhere today and in our society, which is in a present state of spiritual decline. The second vision was from Bernard Lonergan, and this is where my study of him got me back to the reality that is Jesus Christ. His definition of authenticity was a self-transcendence. And by that, we don't mean a transcendent over other people, but a, a life that transcends one's own self, one's own selfish desires, and in fact, is self-giving and self sacrificing in love. This kind of authenticity demands several conversions on four different levels of human consciousness. I'm not going to go into all those now today. I just want to say this. We are all creatures of desire. We are all, as human beings, creatures of desire. And God has given to every one of us, according to John 1.9, a desire, a pure desire, to know, to know being, and ultimately to know him. This pure desire is something that we need to cultivate and stay with. Stay with it, the pure desire to know. No matter how much you think you know, no matter how much I think I know, we don't know it yet as we ought to know it. The only time we're going to come to know as we ought to know is in beatific knowledge or the knowledge that we have when we see God face to face, when we see him and when we know as we are known. And so the pure desire to know has to be maintained. If you ever think you've gotten to a plateau because you've received some form of insight, whether it's universal, the universal horizon of redemption or any other insight, the danger is that you stop there, that you think you've attained, that you think that now not only have you attained, but now you can compare yourselves unwisely with others who have not yet attained this insight, which purely comes through grace. And so rather than a, an, a pseudo-authenticity, we want to be authentic. And what has been drilled into my mind, and this began two years ago when the we had an ordination service. First Timothy 4.16. And I always remember it in the King James because that's the first way I got introduced to the scriptures. It begins with, take heed to thyself. Be attentive to yourself. And to the doctrine. Yourself first. No theologian can produce proper the theology unless he himself or she, him, or she herself is authentic. And authenticity demands conversions on the level of 
experience, conversions on the level of the intellect, conversions on the level of morality, and conversions most of all in the deepest interiority of our being, which is the human spirit, in which the love of God is poured out in our hearts. If we fail to take heed to ourselves in this regard, then our transcendence will deviate into something else. It'll go into strange areas that are not true doctrine. And I've seen this happen of people with, who have a universal horizon. Their transcendence, which is to transcend themselves and live outside of themselves in Christ, deviates into some abnormal aberration of doctrine or some pseudo-mysticism where they get way out there. And they're far worse off, spiritually speaking, than they ever were before they had the insight of a universal impact of Christ's salvation. So I urge you, in the name of the one who lightens everyone who comes into this world and gives them a created participation in divine light, which is a pure desire to know, keep the pure desire to know. No one ever had more insight than the Apostle Paul, whom we began an earnest study of years ago with Better Call Paul. All of this comes under that general rubric, rubric in, incidentally, of Better Call Paul after years in the Johannine study. Nobody had a deeper, farer, or further extended horizon, more insights than the Apostle Paul. And yet, at the height of his maturity, he said, that I may know, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may be conformed in some real way, some real and authentic way into his dying and therefore experience even now in some great measure the power of the resurrection which will one day be a bodily resurrection. Keep the pure desire to know. Don't let it deviate. Have the sense of wonder that gives voice to inquiry, to questions that require answers, answers that require reflection, reflection that requires judgment, judgment that requires a judgment of value, and a decision that you will be the kind of person that bears the image of God, which is Christ. Deliberation that brings you into a level of awareness in an interpersonal sense with other believers, and an awareness that you have been brought into a fellowship of divine and human persons, the triune God, fellowship with the triune God. And we're going to be addressing this. Take heed and I like the King James because it just seems to be more potent. Take heed to thyself. Socrates' great notion, know thyself. Shakespeare's, to thine own self be true. Paul, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Yourself first. No authentic doctrine comes from an inauthentic person. No communicator of doctrine ought to be inauthentic. What we have today is illusions based on inauthenticity. And when people get together, they pool their illusions and they pool their 
mistaken notions and call it truth. And no more, in no other area other than justification is this more noted, where human acts become ascendant over the divine action of salvation in Christ Jesus. So be authentic. People talk about keeping it real, and yet that's just being an amoral self-assertion in most cases. I got to be me. That's not authenticity. That's the antithesis of authenticity. I got to be in a life that's a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus. Paradoxically, the only way into self-transcendence is through humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. And as the song said, he's the lifter of our heads. He gives us elevating grace through conversions in five levels of consciousness. We'll get into that more as we progress. And the ultimate, of course, is imitating God. Be imitators of God as we have it in Ephesians 5.1. And be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect, and that's a perfection in love. And he who keeps this word, keeps it through conversions. She who keeps and retains this word, guards this word, this message, this gospel message. In that person, the love of God is perfected in 1 John 2.5. And in that love... We are as he is in this world. In that love, we have confidence in the day of judgment. In that love and by that love, we don't crack under the pressure of the ordeals that come with the clash of the eons, which we've learned about in Romans, another insight from Romans. So today, I wanted to say that first before we get into the doctrine of justification, in which we'll be also recalling all the way back into our Johannine days, our days when we studied John, the fourth gospel, and John, the apocalypse. And speaking of that, Revelation, also known as the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, is an epistle written by John, to the seven churches located in the Roman province of Asia, modern Turkey, about a transition to a new aeon, which culminates in the transformation of evil into the supreme good and the restoration of the image of God in all of creation. Revelation, then, is in an epistolary form. It's an apocalypse in an epistle form. Romans, the epistle, is an apocalypse of the righteousness of God, his saving action, which culminates in the liberation of all of creation from its slavery to corruption. Revelation is an apocalypse in the form of an epistle. Romans is an epistle in the form of an apocalypse. John and Paul, two men with two horizons of human experience, 
We're in agreement as these two God-breathed documents have demonstrated to us. The question that we asked at the beginning of our study of the book of Revelation, a question that arose from our sense of wonder, from our pure desire to know. The question that we asked at the beginning of our study of the book of Revelation, are God's judgments retributive? That is, are they punitive in their nature and goal? Or are they transformative? That is, do those judgments, and therefore God's justice, bring about a radical, positive change? The answer, after long exposition and concentrated distillation, not only as we studied the doctrine, but as we took heed to ourselves with an authentic subjectivity. There's no such thing, incidentally, as pure objectivity. It is a naive realism, a childish thinking, picture thinking, to think I see and what I see is the way it is. What's out there, I see. What I see is. That's naive realism. Critical realism says, what is it, quits it, comes to an understanding or an insight, and then that insight is reflected upon and a judgment is reached. This is something that goes on inside of us. Once the judgment is reached, we deliberate. And when we deliberate, we come to a conclusion. And when we come to a conclusion, we ask ourselves, what would be good? And what would it be good for me to be? That's authenticity. That's a process that was happening in me since many years ago in approaching the scriptures. As we took heed to ourselves and to the doctrine, the Lord graced us with these insights. The question was answered. After long exposition, concentrated distillation of Rev the Book. And it was God's judgments are transformative. This answer was made explicit and dramatic by the enthroned God himself. Who announces in Revelation 21.5, look, I am making everything new. Paired with 2 Corinthians 5.17, things that are new are things that are in Christ. If anything or anyone is in Christ, there's the new creation. The new that God is making everything is everything in Christ. Along with that answer came the insight that the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which we know as the book of Revelation, was a stunning and dramatic disclosure of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and of the universally redemptive and reconciling impact of his sacrificial death as God's lamb. The question we asked at the outset of Better Call Paul Do all of Paul's epistles constitute an apocalypse? The answer, after long exposition and a brief but determined distillation, 
is also emphatically in the affirmative. Yes, it is an apocalypse, a stunning revelation of the universally saving significance of God's son, Jesus Christ, the lamb. Romans 8.32 reveals him as that. So the answer after long exposition and distillation and translation of Romans is yes, as far as Romans is concerned, Paul's epistles are an apocalypse of the saving significance of Jesus Christ. Or better, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. Romans, all by itself, is an apocalypse of the universally saving significance of Jesus, the Son of God, and a dramatic disclosure of the universally redemptive, reconciling, and a third R, rectifying. Rectification is another word for justification. The rectifying effect and impact of the cross, that which we will call an even bigger topic, instaration. Instaration. That root word star comes down to us as staros, which means the cross. Instaration, the universal impact of the cross, a universal renewal. Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, is a hymn that already existed before Paul wrote. And Paul implanted that hymn within the texture and tone of his magnificent epistle to the Philippians. He added two tiny phrases, though, in brackets. The first was, death by crucifixion. That phrase was added. Death by by crucifixion at the end of 2.8. And at the end of 2.11, he added, to the glory of God the Father. Those two little phrases indicate what I call a doctrine of instauration. Death by crucifixion to the glory of God the Father. Death by crucifixion of Jesus, resulting in his resurrection. A twofold event that results in the remarkable transformation of all things, diachronically in all of their times. Instauration will be the most crucial and definitive doctrine that has come from this pulpit. It's upcoming. The word lamb, we noted, was used 28 times in the book of Revelation. This is a truth worth recovering and pulling back into the mix. This correlated with a term which described the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits of God, which are depicted in the dramatic imagery of John as seven blazing torches, eternal flames, we could call them, before the throne of, quote, the one who is, who was, and who is coming. I would rather call God, God, than the universe. 
To call God the universe is indicative of a deviated transcendence, someone who has come to the knowledge of the universal saving effect of Christ, but has missed out on who God is. The universe itself is waiting for God to come and fill it up. So you're missing the boat, and I'm sure you're not intending to be an idolater by calling him the universe. If you want to call him something other than God, you have to really search, because the scripture calls him hotheos, God, hotheos. But if you want to call him something and you're not content with that term God, how about the one who is, who was, and who is coming? That is coming to fill up all of creation. Revelation 1.4 speaks of the seven spirits of God who are seven blazing, eternal, flaming torches before the throne of God. That's literary, metaphor, not literal, literary. And the seven spirits of God is found in Romans, Revelation rather, 1-4-3-1-4-5 and 5-6. We also noted with the help of Richard Bauckham and his faithful studies of Revelation, the climax of prophecy and the theology of the book of Revelation, that the seven spirits of God were mentioned four times. Four times seven is 28. The lamb is mentioned 28 times. Now, what I get from this, and first of all, I want to see this, and you can look at this verse if you want. It's, a, it's the central verse, really, in Revelation. In the first mention of the lamb, Revelation 5, 6, we also have the last mention of the seven spirits of God in the same verse. The first mention of the lamb, the first of 28 uses of the lamb, is in the same breath as the last mention of the term, the seven spirits of God, which is a word for the Holy Spirit. This conflation itself is astonishing by its ability to foster a remarkable insight and understanding or a construal in our mind, an insight, that the missions of the Lamb and of the seven spirits, that is, the missions of the Son and the Spirit, are conjoined in a salvific invasion of the enslaved creation. The seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, both the offering and the priest, of an offering once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin altogether. Hebrews 9.26 in agreement with John 1.29. Jesus Christ is represented. Now you see a fusion of Revelation and Romans has rocked me back and forth for a long time now. This is an amazing thing. But all along, there is the sometimes agonizing and sometimes very pleasant Transformation of thyself, which must occur. Jesus Christ is represented with powerful, symbolic imagery as a lamb that had appeared to have been slaughtered, but who nevertheless was standing. 
between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. The four living creatures represent all of creation, the 24 elders, all of humanity, and the lamb stands in the midst of the human representatives of all creation and stands in their midst and the stands between the representatives of all creation and the uncreated God. He's the only mediator between God and man, the man who is also God, Christ Jesus, who uh, gave himself as a ransom for all. First Timothy two, five and six. So this lamb who appeared to have been slaughtered, this correlates with Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, who explicitly states in verses 7 and 8, Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been slaughtered. Therefore, celebrate the feast with authenticity and truth. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Of justification. This lamb is said to have had. This is extraordinary imagery. He is then said to have. To have seven horns. And seven eyes. Which are the seven spirits of God. That go into all the earth. The lamb. Has seven eyes. Seven horns. The seven horns we construe as the consummate authority in heaven and on earth that God gave to the risen Christ. The horn or the shofar or the horn also speaks in the Old Testament of authority. Seven horns speaks of the total authority that God gave to his son, Jesus Christ, in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, in the heavens and the earth, because by him the heavens and the earth and all beings in them are reconciled. And God has given to him all flesh, the same all flesh that cannot be justified in God's sight. In Psalm 143.2 has been given to Jesus Christ and is in Jesus Christ whom God justified through his death. Our justification is instauration. I was crucified with Christ. Paul means I was justified with Christ. We'll see how this connects. And throughout, I take heed to myself. So then, this is the full authority given to him. But the seven eyes of the Lamb are explicitly stated to be the seven spirits sent into all the world. What strange imagery. You can't take it literally and you'll be in a deviated transcendence. Take it literarily and you'll be blown away. This unparalleled image in Revelation 5-6 dramatically discloses the conjunction, in fact, the union of two divine missions. And this is also a lead into theology. That of the son 
the Father sent the Son, that of the Spirit, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit on a mission. That the seven spirits of God that are the eyes of the Lamb are sent. This is our key word, if you remember, all the way back in John's gospel, apostello. And that is soft breathing, apostello, where we get the word apostle, A-P-O-S-T-E-L-L-O. Sent, it says, in Revelation 5, 6, the seven spirits sent into all the earth. He's pictured in heaven, but he's sent in all the earth because he is sent to reconcile all beings on earth and in heaven through Christ the Lamb, who is the expiation for sin. Now, see, follow this now. This all came yesterday after agonizing for days about where do I go now? And this is always a trauma for me when I finish Revelation or Romans or John. I'm thinking, man, I'm alone. I feel like I'm hurled out into the universe like an actor on the stage and a dog without a bone, as Jim Morrison would say. But it's then that my pure desire to know kicks in and I go to God and say, what's next, what's next, what's next? And I went through a lot of different things. And this is what came up as the final answer, at least as far as I can see, in as much as I have reached some kind of authenticity, which isn't anywhere near where I ought to be. That the seven spirits of God that are the eyes of the Lamb are sent, apostello, into all the earth hints very strongly at the universality of the mission of the Holy Spirit, who is pictured in heaven as seven blazing torches before the throne. In those four descriptions. The Spirit of God is sent to extend and work in conjunction with the Son of God's visible mission and his invisible mission, which is ongoing right now. His visible mission is the days in his, of his flesh after his incarnation, his perfect obedience to the Father and allegiance to his will to save all mankind. And that obedience led him to death, even death by crucifixion, in starvation, to the glory of God the Father. For every knee will bow, every tongue will acknowledge, every eye will see. And not just see in the childish sense of the word, but see in a way that verifies to oneself that Yahweh, the one who is and was and always will be, is in fact Jesus, the Nazarene, to the glory of God the Father. So the Spirit of God is sent to extend and work in conjunction with the Son of God, the Lamb of God's visible mission, and his ongoing invisible mission. He invisibly manifests himself to people like you and me through the word, through the spirit. And sometimes in a dramatic fashion, he steps right into the house of our lives. 
And so the Spirit of God is sent to extend and work in conjunction with the Son of God's visible and invisible mission by which God intends not only to save the world, John 3.17, but to bring everything and every being through the course of all time, that's diachronically, under the supremely gracious headship of Jesus the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. He who is the Messiah of Israel is the Savior of the world in John 4.42. And this refers, of course, to another key verse, Ephesians 1.10. No image, no image can more powerfully affirm the union of these missions more than the seven spirits being the very eyes of the Lamb. Therefore, the horizon of the transformative impact of these two missions, listen carefully, here's the insight. The horizon of the transformative impact of these two missions is as far as the lamb's eyes can see. And the lamb's eyes are the seven spirits of God, the omniscient, omnipresent Holy Spirit. Therefore, picture this. When Jesus called upon his father from the cross, Father, forgive them. How far did his eyes see when he asked that prayer? When he made that really demanding petition? How far did the lamb's eyes see? Are we speaking just of the man Jesus who saw a crowd of hecklers and jeerers throwing excrement at him, cursing him, mocking him, jeering Was he only speaking of that crowd that voted and insisted on his crucifixion by Pontius Pilate? Or were his eyes the eyes of the seven spirits that saw all of humanity in a sweeping, simultaneous survey as Yahweh? When Yahweh looked down from heaven, he saw all the sons of Adam, literally, and that they were under sin. Romans 3, 10 to 12, conferring with Psalm 14, 1 to 3, Psalm 53, 1 to 3, 2, same passage. Jesus is Yahweh. He sees with the eyes of the Holy Spirit. When he made the petition, Father, forgive them, his eyes saw all of humanity in all of its times. How far do the eyes of the Lamb see? Moreover, he says, they know not what they do. They don't know what they're doing. Again, that observation certainly extends beyond the crowd before his human eyes who insisted on his crucifixion and who were mocking and heckling him. 
Here's the question. Did not the eyes of the lamb, the very spirit of God, see omnisciently, omnipresently, omnipotently, diachronically, all of the human race in a single sweeping survey? The answer is affirmative. So when he said, Father, forgive them, he wasn't just speaking of Caiaphas, Judas, Pilate, the high priests, the mocking, jeering crowds who said we only have one king and it's Caesar, crucify him. He meant you. He meant me. Until we reach some form of authenticity, we really don't know what we're doing. We need a conversion at the level of the psyche, the sensate, because we view something as good because of the pleasure we derive from it. And we say, it's so good, it can't be wrong. We don't know what we're doing to our soul, to other people. We don't know what we're doing. And so there has to be a level of psychic conversion right at the level of the sensate level where we sense and experience. And that brings us into an authenticity, a moral conversion in which that which is right takes precedence over our own personal satisfactions. That gets into Romans 14 and 15, but... I want to stay on track here. So was this request, Father, forgive them, really a demand made to the one who always hears his son? He said, Father, you always hear me. You say, he didn't hear him when he said, let this cup pass from me. Yes, he did. Because in the same breath, Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. The father heard the son when the son said, father, he didn't say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in this prayer? He said, father, forgive them. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, resuscitated him as it were. Because he would die again. He said, Father, I know that you always hear me. But for the sake of these people around here, I'll say it out loud. Lazarus, get out of there. Come out. Come forth. And Lazarus comes forth just like the rest of us. We stink till he unwraps us and unravels our ignorance. So did not the father hear the request of the one who said, you always hear me, father. I'll ask it this way. Did not the father who Here's the son. Forgive all the sons of Adam. 
as a direct effect of his son's crucifixion and death? And in answer to his crucified and dying son's petition, did he forgive? Did not the father who declared, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, hear him? In Matthew 3.17 and then again in 17.5, hear him. Did the father not hear him? He commands, hear him. Did the father not hear him? Yes, he did. His ears are inclined to the righteous. So did not the father forgive all the sons of Adam as a direct effect of his own son's crucifixion and death and an answer to his crucified and dying son's petition? Did not the father who declared, this is my son, hear him. Did he not hear him? He did. For as Paul declares in Romans, this is all toward a doctrine of justification. As Paul declares in Romans, Jesus was handed over for our offenses and resurrected for our justification. There it is. Our Justification is none other than the justification of life. The Greek phrase is astonishing here when you see it. It's dikaiosin, D-I-K. I want to do the Greek words because we're going to bring this into the doctrine. We're not going to finish that doctrine today. Dikai, D-I-K-A-I, omega O. S-I-N, followed by a word that means life. Zoe, Z, Omega, O, Eta, E, S. Zoe. So, dikaiosin, Zoe. A justification that consists of life. A rectification of our situation which is being dead in sins. While we were dead in sins, he made us alive. Justification cannot be separated from life. It isn't a legal, merely judicial imputation. See, we're addressing an aberration or an inauthentic doctrine. So, again, I say, what if you feel like you're going against the grain? Well, perhaps you're going against the grain of a people who pooled their illusions together and called it doctrine. The illusion of an eternal hell. Millions agree with that. And if you want to start a fire, tell people that you believe there isn't such a thing. People pool their illusions. And so religion becomes the pooling of illusions 
by inauthentic theologians. So, our justification is none other than the justification of life, which is the justification that consists of life to those who are dead in sins. That was granted to all of the human race formerly in Adam, called the sons of Adam, according to Romans 5.18. All who were formerly sons of Adam. (laughs) Justified. So the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of the fourth gospel, not John the Apostle, but a person outside the circle of the 12 and inside a closer circle to Jesus called the beloved disciple. We spent probably months on defining that person. And he's probably also the author of Revelation. He was a man with a different set of human experiences from Paul. But he flocks together as birds of a feather with Paul's soaring insight. Quoting John the baptizer in John 1, as saying at the sighting of Jesus, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. John the Elder, perhaps the same as the beloved disciple and the author of Revelation, who wrote three epistles just before Jude, just before Revelation in the canon of Scripture. John the Elder, the author of three Johannine epistles, says, in agreement with Paul, that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, 1 John 2, 1, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, compared with Romans 1, 17, the righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. This John the Elder in agreement with Paul that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, having been slaughtered and having died by crucifixion, now stands before the Father as the expiation or the living embodiment of the reality that our sins have been taken away. What is reality? Jesus is reality. What is the reality that our sins have been taken away? Jesus He is the propitiation, not for our sins only, church folk, synagogue folk, but for the sins of the whole world. That's diachronically speaking, all the human race, the sons of Adam and daughters of Adam. And by our sins, he means not. Our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. First John 2, 1 to 2. First John 4, 9 to 10. Only Paul. Now listen carefully to this. It's a vital. This is a crucial doctrine. This is something that really everything comes to in the past 40 years for me in a sense, in one sense. Only Paul uses the word justify. Dikaiao. Dikaiao. It's a root, it's a verbal form of the word dikaiosune, which the whole gospel is about. The whole gospel is the unveiling or the revelation of the dikaiosune of God, the saving action of God. If God's righteousness isn't just an attribute of his, but a saving act, then what is the verbal form? What God does to us. So, 
Only Paul uses this word dikaio and justification, the noun, which is D-I-K-A-I, Omicron, or it's Omega O S I S. Dikaiosis or dikaiosis accent here. Only Paul uses the na- the verb justify, dikaio, and the noun justification, dikaiosis. Only Paul uses these words as descriptive of the salvific transformative impact of Jesus Christ's real death as verified by his burial and his real resurrection as verified by many appearances to select witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, one day. So the reason for this in Romans is because the apostle to the nations, Romans eleven thirteen, is engaged through a significant portion of that epistle in a dialectic with an opponent, as we have seen, who purported that justification in God's eyes, as used in Psalm 143.2, can occur through human works performed in observance of the law that came through Moses. So this word justify in terms of a saving doctrine or a soteriological doctrine is only used by Paul and only in Romans and Galatians is it a theme. The word justified is used elsewhere like when Jesus said wisdom is justified by all her children. It doesn't mean wisdom is saved by her children. So the word justified has many nuances, but only in Romans and Galatians is it a thematic or a theme or a motif of salvation. And so because of a specific battle that Paul is in against preachers of another gospel, which he calls in Galatians, not a gospel at all. And so that word, dikaio, is only used with two exceptions, and one of those is what I've asked you to turn to in Titus. Only Paul uses them as descriptive of the universally salvific and transformative impact of Jesus Christ's Real death, which is witnessed to by his burial, and his real resurrection, which is witnessed to by over 500 selected witnesses who saw him. The reason for this, again, is that Paul, the apostle, and this is a huge insight from Romans, is engaged through a significant portion of that epistle in a dialectic with an opponent with a contradictory gospel. And so justify, justified, or justification is used by Paul in a thematic, soteriological sense. That means as a theme of the doctrine of salvation, a wider doctrine. In Romans and Galatians, but in Titus 3.7, note those verses, 1 Corinthians 6.11, and I repeat some of this on Wednesday, hopefully, and 1 Timothy 3.16, Again, I'll say it. 1 Corinthians 6.11, 1 Timothy 3.16, and Titus 3.7. And we're only going to look at the Titus passage in this today. Mentions are made of justification in the context with and even as an operation of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5, here we go, my translation. But when the generosity and philanthropy of God, 3.4 make that. When the generosity and philanthropy 
the triune God's passionate love for humankind, of God our Savior, Soter, S-O-T-E-R, Soter, title Caesar stole, God our Savior. So if you don't like the word God, then use God our Savior. Just don't use universe, please, for God. Titus 3.5, when the generosity and philanthropy of God our Savior appeared. Please note this, it's extreme, the importance of this I can't even, I can't overestimate it. The word here is epiphanio, E-P-I-P-H-A-I-N-O. Epiphanio is used in three times in Titus to great effect. He says, the, when the generosity and philanthropy of God, our God and Savior, made an appearance, Epiphanio, verse 5a, when God's philanthropy and generosity, grace and love, made an appearance. He then goes on in 5a to say, not by acts of rectitude, which we do, But by his act of mercy, God saved us. Watch this. Sozo, S-O-Z-O, saved. This is in an aorist passive indicative. It simply means that at a certain point in time, God's philanthropy, which he always had for mankind, his passionate love for human beings, and his generosity, his overwhelming unconditional grace, made an appearance. Where? In Christ and him crucified. God loved the world so much, he sent his son. He gave his son. God saves us by his grace. Epiphanio, the passive verb, takes place simultaneously with sozo, an aorist, active verb. In other words, when the kindness and generosity of God appeared in Christ crucified, God saved us. When did God save you? At the cross. When did God save all? At the cross. In the Christ event, which is the twofold event of his death and resurrection. And in between his death and resurrection is the burial that verified his real death. And after his resurrection, the appearances which verified and affirmed and testified to his real bodily resurrection followed by his dazzling enthronement at the right hand of God, where he is right now, advocating on our behalf. Advocating on our behalf. Do we have an adversary? Yes. Do we have an advocate? Yes. Whose opinion weighs more with the father, the advocate or the adversary? Answer, duh. First, it's crucial for a clear doctrine of justification. Real fast, seven points. First, it's crucial for a clear doctrine of justification that we understand that the action, the aorist passive indicative, you don't have to know all that, form of epiphanio, which is to appear, is coetaneous or simultaneous. It occurs at the same time as the action of the aorist active indicative form of the verb sozo. That's why I like to exegete. When God's generosity and philanthropy made an appearance in Jesus Christ and him crucified, which I determined not to convey anything else but, God saved us. So what do you think he's got to do? Save people or wake them up? 
Awake, you sleeper, and rise from the dead, you deadheads. And Christ will shine on you. Christ who saved you will shine on you. Well, that's Ephesians 5.14. Many arrows point to Ephesians. Other arrows point to Hebrews. A huge arrow points to the fusion of the two. First, then, a doctrine of justification. We have to understand that the appearance of God's grace in Christ is at the same time the action of the aorist active indicative of the verb to save. When God's generosity and philanthropy made an appearance, God saved us. Second, as Titus 3, 5b and 6 reveals, this divinely performed act of salvation occurs in our own lifetime. It's made applicable. It becomes a reality to us in our experience. In Titus 3, 5b, the second half, through the bath of regeneration. The bath of regeneration. A bath is a formal term. It doesn't mean you have to be literally water baptized. The bath itself is the regeneration. Palingenesia. Suffice it to say now that Jesus used this in a universal sense in Matthew 19, 28. When the regeneration happens, that's the universal one. You guys, 12 apostles, will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Do those 12 thrones include the throne of Judas Iscariot, redeemed? Hmm. That's a question. Answer it with your own authentic bad selves. So through the bath of regeneration, which is even, not and, but even the renewal of the Holy Spirit which was poured out on us abundantly. This means abundantly means that God is going to pour out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. The all flesh can't be justified in God's eyes. All living can't be justified. So all the living died when Christ died to be justified when he rose. Nobody that teaches a doctrine of justification that I've ever read in my life in 40 years of reading theology has ever said that. So, it doesn't mean I'm special. It means we're building on the doctrines of theologians in the past. This is theology phase two. Phase one, you traffic among theologians of the past and the present. Phase two, you stand on your own two feet. Phase two, welcome to phase two, at least where I'm concerned. Through the bath of regeneration, even the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Notice the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits of God. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Soter is where used there. Savior. Third, it is plainly seen, especially in conjunction with Titus 2.13, that God, our Savior, here is Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, whose universal appearance we anticipate. And that word appearance is epiphania, epiphania, which is the word same as epiphanio, his appearance in Titus 3, 4, repeated again here in Titus 2, 13. At which time every eye will see him, as we know, Revelation 1, 7, confer with Daniel 7, 13 to 14, and Zechariah 12, 10. Titus 3, 7, listen carefully. So that, being justified by his grace, we would become heirs with the confident anticipation 
of eternal life. That means we already have eternal life. He's talking about a bodily participation in the divine life, which happens only in the incorruptible and immortal bodies that we have. Fourth, with regard to both salvation and justification, there is no mention in this passage, which sums up Paul's idea of justification, either of human actions, please notice it, or human belief or faith, but only divine generosity, divine philanthropy, divine mercy and grace shown through Jesus Christ our Savior and through the Holy Spirit who enacts and washes us with a bath of regeneration by which we are born again. The writer of this epistle would be remiss. He'd be inauthentic not to mention human faith in this compact statement of faith if he were a proponent of the classic Reformation doctrine of salvation or justification by faith or by faith alone, yours. If that's the real doctrine, then this guy who summed up Paul's entire doctrine of justification failed to mention the critical viewpoint that we're saved by our faith. He didn't because we are not justified by our faith, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, whose obedience took him to and through death by crucifixion, by which God raised him to give justification to all the sons of Adam who don't even know what they're doing. So close, let me close quickly. Fifth, justification is a soteriological doctrine. That is a doctrine about salvation. It is a distinct element of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and of the universally saving impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it does not cover all that salvation means. So justification is just a part, a meaningful, important part. The universal impact of Jesus' death by crucifixion and his transformative and justifying resurrection from the dead is redemptive and reconciling and rectifying or justifying of all who went wrong and all that went wrong in all of history. Of the entire human race in all of its time. Sixth, in this Titus passage, which is intended to summarize the saving doctrine of Paul's church epistles, including Romans especially and Galatians especially, justification is integrally related inseparably united, not only to Jesus Christ and his saving mission, but to the Holy Spirit and his saving mission, both of which are universal missions. John 3, 17, John 7, 6, 16, 17 to 11, compared with Revelation 5, 6, as Titus 2, 11 had declared already. And this is how it reads if you look at it in the Greek. You see stuff in the Greek you cannot see in the English. And we'll never see in the English. It says this, the grace of God appeared. Guess what word that is? Epiphanio for the third time. The grace of God appeared, made its appearance. And then it simply has a colon there, if we put it in English. And it says, soterias, salvation of all humankind. 
summarize the grace of God that appeared in Jesus Christ. What was its effect? Salvation for all humankind. How can, can I be more blunt? I can't be. That's why I have to holler. Seventh, according to this important praises, the French word for summary passage, praises, you'll have to get used to some new language. You can't become a doctor without knowing a few technical things. So fix the femur. What does that mean? I think femur means leg. So let's fix the leg. Well, you fixed the leg, but you didn't fix the femur. Well, you see what I'm saying? You got to know. Don't, don't accuse like the adversary loves to do in my study of being pseudo-intellectual by using. You have to use terms that you're not familiar with to get to insights that you never had. So, seventh, according to this important praises or summary passage, justification belongs within the framework of a universal salvation effected through two divine missions in conjunction, namely the missions of the Son and the Spirit, or of the Lamb and the seven spirits of God. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world and the seven spirits of God that goes into all the earth to tell everybody about it. So 1 Corinthians 6.11 and 1 Timothy 3.16 are two other verses in the Pauline corpus that deal with the justification outside of Romans and Galatians, where it's thematic. And both of these are connected with the Spirit. Read them on your own, 1 Corinthians 6.11 and 1 Timothy 3.16. And the latter deals with the subject in the light of Christology and the mystery of godliness. So we'll look at these verses in our next class, maybe as soon as Wednesday. So thank you, Father. That after exegesis, exposition, after distillation and translation, a doctrine can emerge clearly, emphatically, and be appreciated by those of us who are, you are transforming to be authentic by self-transcendence in love and through humility. Make us a people who are authentic as imitators of you in love and as those who walk as Christ walked in this world and so that we can properly assess your word and keep your word and in keeping it have the love of God perfected in us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.